And so, Lord, we do come to you. We offer up our humble praise. We open our minds. We open our hearts, our souls. We even bring our bodies into our worship, into this thing called the body of Christ, the church. May we be a force well beyond good, but for the new kingdom reality during our lifetime. In the name of Christ, we all sit. Amen. Have a seat, everyone. You know, church um, has two, in the Protestant tradition, which is what we're in, has two major features to worship. It is sacrament and word. Sacrament and word. Which means you will celebrate the prayers of the people, the communion, uh, the Lord's table, the Eucharist. It also means that you'll celebrate baptism. And then it also means that you will teach and preach and learn and live out the Word of God, sacrament and Word. It's the two features of the faith, sacrament and Word. And so this morning, not only will we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's table here uh, after this teaching, but we will do the teaching part. And we'll dig into it quite heavily this morning and really for the next three weeks as we uh, go into really what I'm going to call a Bible study on this book, uh, this letter actually, that is called Philemon in uh, the New Testament, or if you're British, Philemon. So, um, so if you brought your Bible, good for you. If you didn't, uh, you could probably grab it off your phone or whatever uh, and look it up. And you'll do well then for the next, uh, this week and even the next week after that, to reread Philemon. And, uh, and I'll say it a few times to keep reading it. But in particular, I would encourage you to uh, look at it in two or three different translations. Uh, this is the most basic kind of Bible study you can do on your own, which is to simply grab a, uh, a couple or three different translations of the same book and just compare the differences. Translators work very hard to try and get the nuance from the Greek, and, uh, and they think about it differently. Um, teams and teams of scholars put this work into it. And there are particular nuances in Philemon that require uh, some study. It's not what we think it is. So we're going to read this entire book, which also makes another hallmark here at Lakeland or maybe any church out there, which, uh, except for some churches, I suppose. But we're going to read an entire book of the Bible right here in church, you know, which you're like, wow, it's only one chapter. So, uh, but you could kind of, you know, this afternoon say, I read an entire book of the Bible this morning in church. And like, wow, aren't you special? So, um, but here's just to set the stage before we read the entire book. Uh, it's the Apostle Paul's personal letter to someone he calls a friend, Philemon. I, I'm not personally sure whether or not he ever knew the man personally, but it seems like he could have, but you can't really tell. Philemon is a Christian brother. He appears to be wealthy and quite powerful. Paul writes this letter to Philemon because a runaway slave, a servant named Onesimus, has fled to Paul, who, by the way, is in prison. Onesimus is a Christian as well. And Paul wants Philemon to forgive, pardon, and accept back Onesimus because they are all Christians. Okay? There's your backstory. Here we go. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll read it. You guys can listen along. 
This is out of the New Revised Standard Version, uh, translated in about 1983. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. So there are two people writing. Paul and maybe Timmy, Timothy may be the one actually writing because Paul had a visual impairment, scholars think, and basically needed really big, thick glasses to see, which they didn't have back then. Timothy may have been doing the writing. To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. To Apphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church in your house. You can get an indication that Philemon is wealthy because there's actually a church in his house. He means he has a, a large house. Okay? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God. Because I hear of your love for all the saints, that is the Christians, and your faith towards the Lord Jesus. Verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. More on that verse next week. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he is in prison. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer, prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Verse 15, perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul... I am writing this with my own hand. See, he wasn't writing it in the first place, but now he is. I will repay you. I say nothing about you. You're owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers, to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There's more here than what meets the eye in this letter. Scholars love this letter because it is chocked full of insights into first century Roman Empire. There's stuff about prison. There's stuff about letter writing. There's stuff about the conditions. You understand that if you were in prison back then, there were not three meals a day. You better have some friends or you're going to die. Uh, and Paul, being a Roman citizen, 
by birth, by the way, as well as a Jew and a Pharisee, is, is educated in the classics. He knows Plato. He knows Socrates. He's brilliant. He's also, like I said, a Pharisee. He knows the Jewish Torah. He knows the law. You're talking a very prestigious, wealthy person here in prison, Paul himself, and he's writing to another powerful, wealthy man. Very interesting dynamic when you read the letter and you catch the nuances of Paul's leverage on, on Philemon. If this was business correspondence, you could feel the pressure. And there's a part of me where you get done reading the letter and you think if you're Philemon, are you going to say several of multiple choice options? Wow, I am so convicted by Paul's letter. I will do what he says. Or... Dang, how dare he? Or like, well, go get some money together, guys. Looks like we need to pay for this guy. I mean, the very line in there about Paul saying, think about this. If you're a wealthy person, you're writing to another wealthy person, you say like, if he's done anything wrong, put it on my account. Now, do you think he's actually going to say, yeah, sure, you pay? No, 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 no. What an insult. To say, I'll pay for it. It's my problem. This sort of thing is all throughout the letter. There's more here than meets the eyes. But to us, that may appear on first glance to be a rather ho-hum, sort of pedestrian sort of letter. One person writing on behalf of someone else, and it's just conducting this sort of nice brotherly business. After all, Philemon's servant, Onesimus, is costing Philemon lost time and services. Yeah? He's out something. And Onesimus is done wrong. Philemon is in the right. He is correct. He doesn't have to do anything legally, so to speak, or contractually. Philemon doesn't owe Paul anything. Paul is asking a favor of Philemon. Take back your servant Onesimus. But if this letter is so routine, then why was it kept in the Bible? Because if you just read it straight through, you'd be like, what's this doing in here? Nothing about Romans and Galatians and the Gospels or, you know, all fancy sorts of theology and all this sort of thing going on. Nothing sophisticated really in the letter, theologically speaking. Nothing really in here much about Jesus directly. Why did during the first 400 years of the church, this piece of correspondence remain in the canon of Scripture? And we're going to talk about that even more next week. But there are several reasons, and we're going to explore those deeper reasons, particularly verse 6. So if you want to make a note, read verse 6 in several translations this week. You'll do well for next week. But in general, there is this broad brushstroke of forgiveness going on. Philemon needs to forgive Onesimus, pure and simple. He needs to accept him back, pardon him. Forgiveness is at the core of the whole thing. And it's assumed in the entire letter that Christians forgive other Christians. Yes, it's right there. This is already de facto. This is already right there. You you have Jesus forgiving. Jesus teaching to forgive. Jesus hanging on the cross saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just to run through some things, John chapter 8. I'm going to get this stuff going for you here, okay? It's a chalk talk today, folks. You have, uh, you have John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 7. And he's saying, 
this famous passage. Um, Let you who is without sin cast the first stone. If I spelled it right. John, you get this one? The woman caught in adultery, right? Classic passage, even if you're not a Christian, you often know this sort of passage, either from English lit or something like that. The idea that everyone left, no one stoned her to death, even though she had sinned, she was forgiven. Matthew chapter 6, once again, from the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Forgive others. Forgive others their debts as we have been forgiven. Yes? Luke chapter 23, 34. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Those nailing Jesus to the cross, they didn't know what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus sees with different eyes. They have no idea what's at stake. The forgiveness of the world. And on and on it goes, Jesus again in the Sermon on the Mount saying, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Forgive. Beyond forgiveness, it's actually take another punishment. Can anyone who follows Jesus, everyone, can anyone who follows Jesus not claim that forgiveness is at the heart of of the gospel of Jesus. Is it not pervasive throughout Jesus' teaching? Therefore, Paul can write to Philemon saying, we both understand as brothers in Christ that forgiveness is central to how we understand our identity as Christian brothers. This is just assumed. The reason why I labor over this so much is simply this. I think we have fallen into the trap of thinking that forgiveness is optional. That somehow it is not deeply wrapped up, not just in character and virtue, but it is deeply wound around in the idea of what it means to be a Christian. Let me say it this way. You may not, you are not, a Christian if you do not forgive. That's how bound up it is. And next week we'll explore that perhaps even in the Greek out of verse 6. What about us? Can you forgive the person who ruined your business? Can you forgive the bank who didn't renew your loan and put you out of your business or your house? Can you forgive the person who stole from you? Even the person who took something off your patio, 
something small and insignificant, but it's more the moral of the point, right? Can you forgive them or does it burn inside your soul? What about the neighbor who borrowed your, your string weed eater thing and brought it back broken? And you said, no big deal, no big deal, no big deal. And then you complained about it to your wife for six, six hours all afternoon. Eating away at you. Imagining what you would do to their string weed eater if, you ever, if they ever bought one in their entire life. Can you forgive the adulterer? Can you forgive your ex-spouse? Can you forgive the person who financially destroyed you? Can you forgive the abuser? Can you forgive the parent who abandoned you? Can you forgive God? The one who made you with the body that you have? And the sickness and the illness and the cancer and the pain? Can you forgive at all? Or do we pick and choose what we think is forgivable and what isn't? Philemon's out a bunch of money. I don't know how much. Maybe he was walking around his house stewing the whole time like, if I get that Onesimus back, I'm selling the guy. I'll show him. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was a wonderful person. We never know. So let's not be too flippant when we say, oh, I forgive people. I forgive everyone. I'm a forgiving person. Let's dig deep into it. It's not an optional thing. So I just want to establish this forgiveness foundation to what it means to be a Christian before we move on and actually defining what forgiveness is because now I think we're left with the idea of like, well, what do you mean then by forgiveness? How does forgiveness work? How's it, what's it look like? And this is where we get into the, the, some good traction on the thing. After we move past to, to forgive is to be Christian. This is what Paul is talking about here in verse 6 in this letter where he says, this is the effective faith. This is the effective faith. This is the power of the faith, everyone, that you would forgive, that to forgive is to be Christian. And as you can see in verse 8, this is not an option. Paul says, I could command you. In other words, you and I both have the option to command each other, forgive. No, nobody's going to be able to refute that right there but I won't. I want it to be voluntary. I want it to be an act of charity, to be generous. For you to do this out of love, not out of duty. So how does forgiveness work? How do you forgive somebody who's wronged you? Big or small or lifetime or whatever. It's tricky business. It's not easy. And one of the first things you have to understand about forgiveness is that it's never complete. I'll just go ahead and say never complete. I wrote down rarely 100% complete, but I'm just going to say it's never complete. It raises revenge and bitterness and and, uh, the flush of, of being offended, raises its ugly head long after you think you have forgiven. It will do that. The spiritual fathers of the Christian faith would say, watch out for memories. Watch out for your old memories because when you're least expecting it, they will jump up and bite you where you don't want to be bit. Memories of what somebody has done to you will take them and will we'll stir them in a little cauldron and create a potion that we cast on ourselves called bitterness. You have to be careful because forgiveness is never really 100%. You say, well, how do we know we've actually forgiven? Well, I'm going to give you some things on it, but one of my seminary professors, uh, Dr. Lou Smeeds, 
He put it this way in a popular book. He wrote many books on forgiveness, and I think uh, during the 80s and the 90s, and uh, he's passed now, but he probably was, is, still is, really the forgiveness expert out there, and he's a theologian as well as in the School of Psychology uh, at my school. And in his popular book, Forgive and Forget, he said this, Forgiveness is God's invention for coming to terms with a world in which people are unfair to each other and hurt each other deeply. He began by forgiving us, and he invites all of us to forgive each other. Smeeds goes on to say that there are really three parts to forgiving others in our lives. There are three parts to it, and the very first one is this. We, we have to surrender. Surrender our right to get even. And it's always about trying to get even, isn't it? Somehow justice is going to be done. I thought this week that somebody didn't put the pinto beans in my bag at hy V, I I went and checked the receipt. Where are those pinto beans? It's on my receipt. I paid 69 cents for that can of pinto beans. What happens then? Somebody's going to have to pay. I would spend more money in gasoline driving back up to... This is what's going on in my mind while I'm walking around the kitchen. You know, spending all this time thinking about a can of pinto beans and wondering who is at fault. There wasn't a sacker. It must have been the checker. And then you don't want to hear what I begin to think about the checker. You know, they should be in a retirement home. You know, on and on and on, all sorts of things I start saying to myself. Until my wife walks in and picks up the can of pinto beans behind the roll of paper towels and hands it to me. (laughs) Which, of course, that was not my fault. I am a sweet and loving person. All of that damage over a can of pinto beans. In my house growing up with three older brothers, we were fond of saying this, don't get mad, get even. Not much forgiveness took place among us. We believed that if we could make the other guy pay, we'd feel better. And in some sort of really greasy sort of fashion, it did for a little while make you feel better. Maybe that's just brotherly love. But that was our approach to childhood conflict. And I can't really say if it really worked well or even at all, but we all knew intuitively that somehow the idea in conflict was to make somebody pay. Never, ever surrender your right to get even. That would be ridiculous. And it takes Jesus Christ, God Almighty, coming to earth in order to tell us something like so, so absolutely counterintuitive as you're going to have to begin to forgive. It means you'll have to begin to surrender to give your right to get even. That's your first step. The very first thing is that you'll have to surrender this right to get even. Author Max Licato uh, years ago wrote a true story about a man named Kevin Tunnell. Ten, uh, Kevin Tunnell, who is required to mail $1 to a family that he'd just soon forget, Lucado says. They sued him for $1.5 million but settled for $936, not the $1.5 million. $936 to be, to be paid $1 at a time, $1 each week, due each Friday, promptly. 
just so Tanel won't forget what happened on the first Friday of that tragic year, 1982. That was the day their daughter was killed by Tanel, convicted of manslaughter and drunk driving. He was 17, she was 18. Tanel served time. He spent another seven years campaigning against drunk driving. Six more years than the sentence required even. He was contrite. He was sad. He changed. But he kept forgetting to send the dollar on Fridays. It was supposed to be for 18 years. One for every year of the girl's life. The family had taken him to court four times for failing to send the check. Last time he spent 30 days in jail. He said he's tormented by the girl's death. He offered the family two boxes of checks to cover the, 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 um, to cover the, the payment, but they refused. They don't want the money. They want revenge. They don't want to surrender. They want him to pay the penance. And quoting his mother, we want to receive the check every week on time. He must understand that we are going to pursue this until time runs out. Who is in prison? Tanel or the parents? Will the parents ever get the little girl back? No, never. No amount of money will ever bring her back. In order to free the parents, for the parents to be free, they are going to have to surrender their right to get even. That's how they will move on. You see, everyone, forgiveness requires the offender to eat the offense. I've struggled for years trying to find a fancier terminology for it or a better verb for how what happens in this transaction where somebody surrenders their right to get even. And all I can ever say is you have to eat the offense. Somehow you have to, in all of its horsiness and bitterness and sour taste, it has to be consumed by you. The offended one eats the offense. This is not saying there isn't justice. This doesn't say that it's all forgotten. But in order for you, the one who has been offended, to be free, you must eat the offense. And the offender cannot talk you into it. It has to be done by the one who is offended. Step two, according to Smeets, you have to begin, after you surrender, to see the offender... With new eyes. You have to begin to think about them differently. You have to begin to try and think about understanding what's going on with them. Your parents did you wrong. Why? Why did they do that? That question you've been asking ever since you were probably seven or eight years old, if it was that early. Why did why why what happened? Was there mental illness? Did they have emotional problems? Were they abandoned themselves? Why were they so anxious? Why did they take it out on you? Maybe their own life has been consumed by a parent who, who did them wrong. Maybe they're just not sophisticated enough emotionally to understand how do you deal with someone who has hurt you so they took it out on you. 
And you begin to see that. You begin to see that maybe some people are just children in old people's bodies. And they'll never grow up. And they'll just be that way their whole life. And you begin to gain a little bit of pity. Or at least a head nod to yourself that says, well, God, they're just that way. You know, Oprah Winfrey, in the early days, she was not who she is now. She was sort of a dramatic, um, in the early days of sort of sensational news reporting, she was one of the first ones out there. And she was just uh, crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and what happened to change her is that she confessed that she hated her father who had abused her. If you remember this from a long, long time ago, she did a special on it, and her entire life changed as she began to surrender her right to get even. Her father had died, and she had to forgive someone who wasn't even there. And that set her up to become a much more serious type person. And people could relate to it, and I think they still do. You have to begin to see people with other eyes. You have to realize that we are all messy, And we're all goofed up. And you begin to draw a little wider circle out there to say like, well, maybe I have my issues too. That doesn't make what they did right. It just means that maybe I can begin to see them with some different vision. The third thing that Smeeds talks about, and I think this is the most interesting one, and you can measure this one. You begin to wish them well. You begin to think, I hope they have a good life. I hope, I hope they find some, a counselor. I, I hope they, I hope they uh, use the money well. I no longer wish for them to, you know, be run over in the parking lot. I no longer wish calamity upon them. I remember when we started the church some 20 years ago, those were exciting times, fun times, and they were also very, very tense times. They say every church, when it begins, has some serious leadership challenges early on, this sort of thing I studied because I was in, uh, steeped in the school of church growth. And, and our church, I thought, was going to be an exception, and lo and behold, it was not an exception to leadership challenges. I just thought we were going to do it all different. And I had to carve out in those early days, because everyone knew everybody and everybody was sort of the leader on the thing, I had to carve out a subset of leaders. It did not go well, just like the book said it would not go well. Some people will be offended because there's now going to be an inside group of leadership and there's going to be an outside group when before everyone was one. And sure enough, one person freaked out. And they were having their own story and their own problems. Step two, I begin to see them in new eyes. And they hurt me, I hurt them. And it never really turned out well. But I remember driving along years later in my silence in my car And suddenly the thought came over me, really more of a prayer. I wish them well. I hope they find a good church. I hope their children prosper. I wonder how they're doing. I hope their business does well. And all of this sort of just welled up in me as I was just done with thinking through things. 
And what's also most interesting is since forgiveness is never 100% complete, it's about a few seconds later, I went flush with anger again. And then I smirked at myself. I thought, so, still trying to hold on to something, huh? Still wanting vengeance. How's that working for you, Dr. Phil? But I also realized I am free. That no longer holds me in bondage. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. And that's what Paul is laying claim to in this letter to Philemon. We are free. We are free people. Paul gives Philemon a choice. He can demand justice and payment for Onesimus, and maybe even Paul, because he's harboring a fugitive, so to speak. Or Philemon can free himself from the burden and forgive. What will we do? What would you do? This forgiveness thing is a project. You don't walk out of here saying, oh, good, I got three points and some scriptures. I'm good. I'm going to become a forgiveness expert. I'm all down with this. Remember, it's never 100% done. Never 100% done. And so this is an ongoing process. I personally think it takes years, especially for something deeply uh, where you've really been offended. And realize if you're the one who hurt somebody else, you can't just sit around and say, I demand that you forgive me. (laughs) It's right up there with, I declare you're all happy now today, okay? If I'm in charge of your feelings, then you be happy which is, you know, the corollary to, uh, you made me angry. Well, if I made you angry, then I'm going to make you happy. You are now happy. <laughs> I don't get that logic. You know what I mean. Play with these sort of things. This is the way things work. Well, now, as we talk about forgiveness, we come to the great symbol of forgiveness, and that is the sacrament, the Lord's table. So if the servers would come forward. And here we have this gift And if anything is remembered about the Lord's table, it's the notion that we are forgiven. We even say forgiveness as a part of it. We even talk about forgiveness. The entire symbol of remembering Christ's suffering on the cross, where he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That very part of that whole scenario is all steeped in forgiveness. It's the blood upon the cross, everyone. That's the forgiveness that you and I experience. So perhaps, uh, I'm going to change this on you, Scott. Let's do the Lord's Prayer now. So would everyone please stand? Because we want to get these words of forgiveness in here now. So let's gather and do the Lord's Prayer together. Let us pray, everyone. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And save us from the time of trial. And deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And then we come to the table with these famous words that we're often praying right now. Where Jesus says, on the night when uh, Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body. That's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. Also, and after supper, he's saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So wait a second, because what you have to understand, what's being proclaimed is forgiveness. Yes? Your forgiveness. My forgiveness. Our ability to forgive someone else. That's what's being proclaimed. So when you come forward and you tear off the piece of bread and you dip it in the chalice and you eat it right there, you're saying, Lord, I receive your forgiveness. Thank you. May I become a person who takes the journey of forgiving others and get myself out of prison of bitterness. That's what's going on. When you come, foot in front of the other foot, step by step, you're on a journey towards forgiveness. Do you understand? Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Everyone, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, hallelujah, the gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. And we thank you, Lord, for these gifts. Come whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of bread. Dip in the chalice. You may pray at one of the sides table if you want to kneel at a cross or return to your seat. And we'll wrap up the service soon. And so, Father, you have fed us with spiritual food, literal food that is so spiritually loaded with symbol. And even the reality of your presence, somehow mysteriously, grace is there. We believe this by faith, not fiction. We believe it because we have experienced you in our life. May we go out this week, Lord, in all sorts of vigor, May we dwell upon these words about forgiveness. May we mold them over and think about it and ponder whether or not we are forgiving people just as you have forgiven us. We thank you for that gift. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, would you stand with me, please? Um, And we'll get out of here uh, in just a moment. Um, Is there anything that you're supposed to do when you leave here? You're supposed to go talk to somebody? I I know how this goes because this goes the same way for me. You're like, yeah, I need to go do that 55 and over thingy. Oh, yeah, that deal. I'm going to sign up for Lakeland Essentials. I'm gonna, and then you like, I, I'm going home and uh, pray for the Royals. So, um, you know, the Chiefs, that took a miracle. But um, <laughs> anyway, so if you have something to do, remember that you're going to do it. And let me just uh, see if I can encourage you or implore you to do this. Really, go ahead and try and read Philemon this week. And see if you can read it in a couple or three different translations, if you have that around, or get online. And see if you can find the differences, and just give you the big hint, this is the big spoiler, look real hard at verse number six, because we're going to dig into that next week, okay? And when you read the different translators, you'll be like, what? What? (laughs) Like, this is really getting interpreted quite differently. So see if you can figure out the puzzle on verse six, and see what you think it actually really says, okay? So let's end with the Northumbria uh, blessing from that community in in Northumbria, Great Britain, uh, from the Celtic tradition. And I think I've said this before, but just so you know, uh, the Northumbria community is just a small group of 20 people or so. And some of them live there and some of them work, but they live in a community and they do these prayers three times a day. They eat together and they cook together and people from all over the world flock there to see how they do community. And one of their members was an actor. And so he'd be gone on tour for months. And uh, and then he would come back. And they took the Celtic tradition prayers 
and adapted this just slightly, and they would say this to each other, but they wrote it initially for this actor who would come and go. So that's where this comes from. Everyone, let's do this together. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.